Oh, I think 2001 was a very influential film to, to all the filmmakers who got fascinated with special effects. The special effects in 2001 were really the last flowering of photo-mechanical special effects. It was such an advanced movie for its time. I mean, it's still amazing to realize that some of the shots involve so much engineering. I mean, you see the entire set rotating and the camera follows and the actors have to uh, hit certain marks, otherwise they will fall down because the set rotates. That was what Kubrick did. Anything that was presented to him as a challenge or something to do, he would immediately figure out how to flip it on its head, do exactly the opposite of what everybody had ever done before. I think that the factor that made everything convincing in 2001 was extreme quality control exerted by Stanley Kubrick himself. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through Voice Print Identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Cinerama have brought together the biggest and most distinguished all-star cast in entertainment history. How the West was won startles your eyes with a huge and colorful panorama of the glorious frontier, with all its reckless adventure and its awesome violence. I wanted to digress a little bit about Cinerama. I don't know if anybody here has ever seen a three-strip original Cinerama projection of a movie. Two or, two or three people. Well, it's a very rare thing. It's a, it's a process that was developed in the 50s. But it's really part of my whole life, which I saw this as a kid. I saw these Cinerama movies as a kid. And I was always kind of heard these weird stories about Cinerama, three cameras in a triptych, three projectors on a giant curved screen. The Cinerama screens were 90 feet wide, which was enormous. You know, six times the size of the screen in width and height. Um, Widescreen movies, uh, very deeply curved screens, cumbersome giant cameras. So they restored How the West Was Won, which is one of the best three camera uh, movies. The difficulties of even the best directors in the world, and one of the directors on How the West Was One was John Ford, and he's one of the, the greatest directors of all time, had big, big trouble dealing with this because the field of view was so wide that every shot was like a master shot. It was very hard to do a close-up, very impossible to do an over-the-shoulder shot, impossible to do normal reverses like you would use. So it, it was the beginning of a, an utterly different cinematic, cinematic language, and it resulted later in 2001 in the 70 millimeter version of Cinerama. And Kubrick used to joke about his job was to make how the universe was one. And we thought that was pretty funny because he, he felt that he had an obligation to make this epic spectacle, not just a normal movie, but an epic spectacle. And he wanted 
to transport the audience into space. You wanted it to be like a first-person experience. And when you present a film like that, and you're a good filmmaker, you can really draw an audience in because they have to pay attention. Those slow parts were absolutely essential to the, the whole feeling of just being in space. It starts getting really interesting and uncomfortable and, and not in a classical way at all, in a very sub-soul way that only, I guess, he knew how to do. I think it's so far ahead of its time in terms of the way it tells a story and does it visually rather than verbally. It's a silent movie in the sound era, and I think we will get back there. 2001 was the beginning of a, a, a genuine revolution of visual effects. In terms of traditional special effects, it is the pinnacle. You go through the first 70 years, and that is the, the best of the best of special effects movies, and it'll always be. 2001 is the biggest quantum leap in convincing realistic visual effects in the history of the medium. Nobody had put the effort into special effects like Stanley had. Stanley really reinvented the medium. When you look at it now and realize that he did it all on film, it's beyond me. Kubrick is making this movie. He felt the responsibility to create a kind of epic you know, like how the West was won, or Lawrence of Arabia. And so he started moving away from the normal conventions of melodrama and stripping away a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the story and even a lot of the plot in exchange for this immersive experience for the audience to feel like they were on this voyage with the cast and that they were actually going into space, not just the characters some transition through time and space in the Stargate, for instance. The thing that anybody would do was an over-the-shoulder shot of Keir Delay in the foreground of the Stargate out the window, or a shot over the shoulder of the pod moving through the Stargate, or a reverse angle in the Stargate of the pod approaching the camera. Those are all the standard shots any director would put into a movie. Kubrick realized that they forced the audience out of the movie. He said, I'm not gonna use those shots at all. I'm gonna stay with the point of view. So the audience becomes Keir Delay. The audience is going on this adventure themselves. That was his conscious decision to do that. And so things start happening directly to the audience. It's a direct line of sight point of view throughout 17 minutes of uninterrupted visual effects at the end of 2001. That's where Kubrick profoundly affected me in terms of what could be the future of, or a future of cinema, an immersive art form, where the director has to consciously decide to allow the audience to participate and be present in this situation. Even as recently as like a couple of years ago, Trumbull's still out there defending the VFX from 2001 and basically shaming all of these <laughs> companies that are heavy handed on the CGI. And apparently they just, they don't know how to do a high frame rate scene if it jumped down their throat, you know? It, it's, it's really sad, especially to, where a lot of the major blockbusters now are so action heavy to have these these scenes with horrible focus and composition you, you can't even see what's going on it's a shame that when it has been tried in something like the hobbit for example the ambition was there and 
the motion smoothing, especially for 3D, worked great to the benefit of the action. It was just the, the one thing that they couldn't maybe have predicted, which was the false sheen and that extra too much of a Z-gloss on the surfaces and the makeup and the costumes and the lighting in order to light for 3D. And so The Hobbit ends up looking fake and glossy and, yeah. and video-y. But Douglas Trumbull was working with a high frame rate for, what, 50 years probably? Yes. And he really wants to develop something that can basically record and project at like 120 frames a second. Mm. And I'm really interested to see if maybe he's got maybe some kind of proprietary device that he... He's playing it so close to the chest and like the way he's talking about, you know, these specific CGI blunders that are continuing to happen. I mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised if he might have something. Yeah, which is why it's obviously he wasn't expecting to die any more than anybody else was because it was right before we started the podcast and, and he was on like interviews a week or two before he died. So he probably has all this stuff in the pipeline and I hope somebody's able to do something like apprentices or maybe some team that he still has or friends that can put this together and and keep this vision alive that he was working on for so long because he was so far ahead so i i believe it's called magi yeah magi is a patent system that solves the problems associated with 3d projections such as motion blur and eye strain Mm. and those i mean every single film that has come out and and the last like 10 years that is done 3d yes has had such a problem with motion blur i mean it's hard to get the light yeah it already reduces the you know natural lumens of the um, projector you know just by donning the yeah. 3d glasses sure but, does. 30 yeah. percent light loss so it it says it's aiming to move away from the video look associated with digital uh, imaging so i'm guessing it's going to lean more on like a like an animated look let's see same as typical 3d shooting it's two cameras and capture sync but oh, oh. good lord good lord it has the the ability to change the frame rate throughout projection ah so scenes can be shot at 24 120 and 1600 fps and be presented together in situ so you can have probably four middle and background running at different frame rates okay. in 3D. Daniels, are you listening? This is your next project now. This is insane. It, he says it's also 2D compatible, but Trumbull says he just prefers 3D for it. Wow. Uh, that's insane, dude. I bet he does, too, because that experiential stuff that he was doing so much of in theme parks like the immersive movie rides that he was doing in the 60s and 70s he brought some of that technology to the the pod sequences that he was working on for rides yeah i want to check out magi that sounds awesome for sure the magi dcp format has been successfully demonstrated in the summer of 2014 and enables any movie made in magi to be distributed globally and is fully compatible with tens of thousands of dci compliant 2k and 4k dlp projectors with series 2 electronics and includes full dci copy protection 
Magi is also fully compatible with nearly all 3D technologies in the market today, including Real-D, Dolby, and Active Classes. This includes dual projection systems, as well as the emerging new 6P laser-illuminated systems, as we showed at IBC and the Giant Screen Cinema Association. Magi and Magi DCP is vastly superior to conventionally produced 24 frames per second 3D movies, as well as 48 and 60 hertz 2K and 4K high frame rate formats. Imagine you had to be so many decades ahead of his time, but also the person that's most recent high profile mainstream works was doing in-camera practical effects for Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, the prehistoric mm. sequence, and his very last project, which was the Lord of the Rings Rings of Power Amazon show promo, where it was the logo burning in wood. And there was an article, you know, it's just a few months before he died, uh, how they set that whole thing up in one shot. So, a Mozart of the moving image. Three rings for the elven kings. Under the sky, seven for the Dwarf Lords, in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men, doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord, on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. I think, to me, movies are, in fact, a very technical art form. It always has been. It's a series, it's a lot of machinery that goes into making movies. It's not like painting or sculpture or writing or stage drama. It's a very technical art form. And I've always felt that the, the objective of movies for me is to try to recreate reality, to encapsulate in the film medium something that really happened or appears to really happen even though it may be a set or a prop or a miniature or an effect or a performance. You want to make the audience feel totally involved and, and really committed and really believe that this is occurring. And I think that uh, Showscan is really the first time in movie history that we've really gotten close to that. It's a, it's a new medium. It'll, it'll require uh, a certain amount of adjustment for everyone to understand that it is different. You just don't want to take ordinary people and shoot it in this process. You want to make films that are highly experiential and can bring to the public events, uh, experiences that they'll never be able to have in their lives. I mean, we certainly all have sad times in our lives with a, when a loved one dies or something like that, but very few of us will ever go to the top of Mount Everest or go to the bottom of the ocean or go into outer space. And we can create those experiences with total realism. And you really, the old heart gets pumping. You really feel like it's happening. The story called for something that represented this transit into another dimension, something that would be completely abstract, you know, not anything you could aim a camera at in the real world. You couldn't walk down a corridor, you couldn't film a miniature, you, it wasn't anything. And so I had been exposed to some things like time-lapse photography. And what 
is called streak photography. Now, if you could imagine that you're out at night shooting moving cars with your camera on a tripod and you open the shutter for 10 seconds, a headlight becomes a bar of light, a long, called a streak exposure or a blur. Now, if you just imagine for a second a fluorescent tube or a piece of neon and you moved it, it becomes a plane, okay? Now, if you imagine further that you could blink it on and off in you know, some kind of a pattern, it would become a plane with a pattern on it in, in, in three-dimensional space or in any shape you wanted to move it. So I, I realized that this was possible, and so I had to build a machine that would do this automatically over and over and over and over to make the frames. Each frame of the Stargate sequence took about five minutes of exposure per frame with the moving artwork behind a slit and a camera that had no shutter in it. The camera stayed open the whole time it was moving while I was moving artwork behind the slit. So it created a pattern of light. And I had to do it twice, once for the left side and once for the right side with different artwork. I think 2001 still holds up because it's so fully imagined a world. Because it's really, in a way, kind of not about anything. You can come into it at any point you want and leave it at any point you want. It's just a shame now that you can't do what you used to be able to do in movie theaters, which is just pay your admission and come in at any point and sit through the picture again and again. Because that's what 2001 was about. People would go and sit through it three or four times. And, and, and part of that was just sort of waiting for your favorite part to come up again. It's, it's in a way like a, a musical that's all showstopper numbers. If there was a conventional way to do it, forget that and think of something else. Go 180 degrees in the opposite direction and think of something new, different, in absolutely every category of work. And uh, it made me open up to the whole idea of what is film. This was a film that was imprinted on the consciousness of everyone who saw it and forced them to talk about it and more importantly to think about it. Every viewer has to make up their own mind about what the film is about. They have to make their own connections. When people who were saying it's trippy at the time were saying is they were accessing based on experiences, what that tapped into. The best ways that we had to express abstract ideas. It was abstract, it's visual poetry and metaphor, and it's also pretty visually literal, according to Christian, who was talking about how delighted Stanley was at how the chemical dyes portion was a, an organic reaction in the same way that a star exploding would have a similar organic ripple to it. And this reflects Arthur C. Clarke's portrayal of it, too, because um, at the beginning of the Stargate, what he's seeing is the creation. He's seeing stars being born. He's seeing, you know, solar systems coming to life. And they achieve this in, in I feel like, a really great metaphoric way with the focusing of the, the different kind of color gradients and the kind of globular concentrations of, of different matter. As you were saying last week, you know, that, that that whole segment in the book, you know, is a very literal exploration of where he goes and into alien civilizations and described in these sort of glass fractal ships and civilizations that were just impossible to film, but they did try. I mean, they, they did do concept art. Yeah, they probably took a good hard look at all the concepts that they had and realized that no matter what they put out, it's still going to kind of break the the message that they're trying to portray. It's just going to seem just like another hokey alien space station. Or um, No, I, th I think it was a, a good artistic decision and narrative decision because 
it wouldn't really be necessary for us to know about, I guess, like the ship dock and the area that was kind of holding all that together. It's holding together more in your in your mind because it's it's more suggestive. I mean, imagine if they had tried those effects in a more prosaic way, you know, to portray the way it's filmed in the book, as high quality as possible as it ever could be in 1968. It's still, if you're talking about describing those crazy things, there's no way that that wouldn't date now compared to oh, yeah. what we have here, which is a chemical in-camera process that our brains still can't (laughs) it almost gets to a point it's like if you stare at a certain point for so long and lose focus and eventually you know if you're in a meditative process and you you lose your environmental surroundings and everything like it it really pulls you away and and brings you to that focal point of light that you're dropping into it's nice a myriad of different kinds of optical illusions different techniques going on in this heart before the, the brain can comprehend it and uh, what I, I love how pervasive this technique becomes in moderns or like I guess sci-fi to follow 2001 especially with the, the slit scan processing you start seeing industrial light and magic creating like the enterprise warp visualizations oh, right. and how it stretches off into the distance and mm-hmm. that motion effect that's that slit scan that's all trumble and, and and i think it was used in several different sci-fi tv shows and i guess yeah. also the star trek motion picture that trumble did also has that wormhole sequence doesn't it oh that's right i guess that's slit scan where they go into the wormhole to destroy god yeah <laughs> the <V'ger. laughs> fluctuating captain patterns unrecognizable the stargate sequence although it's probably not called that of the original star trek the motion picture which came a decade after 2001 uses the same kind of slit scan technique my idea was to simply take the idea of having a shutter in a movie camera and removing the shutter from the camera and putting the shutter as a slit out into the world. So this is a complete break of uh, the concept of what a camera is supposed to do or what time is or what space is. And so uh, this was a pretty successful effect and uh, it was a lot of fun doing it. It was tedious because each side of the streak would be a minute, so that's two minutes, and then another minute for each side to go back to one before you'd shoot the next frame. So it's four minutes per frame. And the whole thing was automated and would run 24 hours a day by itself until something would break. And we had to have crews on this thing in a darkened room around the clock to churn out all the street photography for 2001. Those crystallizations, the animated crystallizations things, that was all apparently projections onto glass or mirror in those triangular shapes so that when that's printed, you know, you've got reflections happening in 3D space that couldn't possibly happen on a 2D animated image if it was all on the same plane. So uh, there's so many layers, you can never see it all. 
I would have been so mad if it all had been just completely exposed through just a narrative overlay. <laughs> and um, Kubrick famously refused to go into detail about the meaning of the ending of the film because he wanted everyone to make their own path, their own conclusion. He didn't want you to be like influenced by a single interpretation of what had happened. That type of storytelling is is typically not as widely accepted as we would see. I I think it is a strong decision to just kind of leave it open-ended like that. I was just blown away. I just thought this is this is some kind of nirvana. Mr. Douglas Trumbull. Take a minute, Trumbull. One of the ideas that was intrinsic here was which was totally revolutionary and is still not understood and has never been replicated. Is the idea that you're, if you're on this motion base. It moves left and right, forward and back and up and down, but it doesn't tip at all. All the tipping is done photographically, which means that each person gets exactly the same kinetic sensations. Flight simulators have a problem, and the Back to the Future ride had a problem, because if it tipped to the left, for instance, the person in the left seat's going down, but the person in the right seat's going up, and it's impossible to make a movie that satisfies both of those motions at the same time. So this was an orthogonal motion base, which I patented and became part of my ride film company that I merged with IMAX. It's a mini IMAX, is what he was working on. Like a personal size, like a okay. personal pan IMAX? The Magi process, the Magi was the camera, and then they made a proof of concept short film that's displayed at 120 frames a second mm. using some kind of wild laser projector. Christy Mirage 4K25. Have you ever heard of that? No. And it's a partial spherical curved Taurus screen. It seats like 70 people. Oh, weird, dude. It looks pretty cool. It looks like it could also cause motion sickness. A hundred degree field of vision. Yeah, yeah, I would I would get a ticket to a Magi Pod. Imagine seeing um, Hardcore Henry. Oh, yeah, Hardcore Henry. I remember when that came out. Oh, yeah, that yeah. first person. Yeah, it's all shot in first person, and it's a wild one. I mean, he gets dropped out of an airplane. <laughs> it's like <laughs> shooting people through parachutes. It, it, it's either one of the funnest action flicks you'll see, or it is nausea-inducing, like, gut-destroying motion. That would be really fun, but Yeah, actually. I enjoyed that one. That was pretty cool. All of those great nature documentaries that IMAX produced in the 90s, you know, they really oh, took man. such great advantage of that medium. I got to see the ocean one. The scale. Oh, wow. Was that one of the camera ones? Yeah, that that was weird. Back in the day, IMAX didn't have major motion film. It was just whatever they had. Yeah. I think one of them, there were two options. It was either that deep sea one or there was a mount everest one i remember the everest one that one played at a lot of them oh really a long time that was a, right after the crack hour book and the oh really it happened so there was a big interest again those just really took advantage of scale and space so well <laughs> it was narrated by liam neeson excellent which one was the everest I the everest so. one was oh it's the tallest moon on the earth <laughs> Uh, I, I guess it's kind of an, a lifelong obsession. 
and you keep thinking out there is going to be something better, bigger, and more have more character, and you keep going for it. So it gives you something to live for. There's no way, dude. There's no way. Blue Planet, the original Blue Planet. Oh yes. Directed by Ben Burt. Yes. God. Wow. Would Created for IMAX. This right here that I'm holding, IMAX Blue Planet, directed by Ben Burt. <laughs> no way. Do you have a copy uh-huh. of that? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's so bizarre. Synchronicity. Yeah, filmed in space by the astronauts. That was one of the big... Ben Burt. He's just everywhere, man. <laughs> Can't get away from him. 1990. I wasn't even in the States yet. No, that's true. Ein Weltblauen. It's very challenging to shoot a documentary film in IMAX because you do have to plan your shots very carefully. You come in, say, on someone's movie set with this big, heavy camera. You set up, you decide, where am I going to be because I'm going to be trapped there uh, for hours at a time. I'm not going to be able to get up and push it around for the studio. Uh, you try to guess ahead of time where the action might occur and then hope that you're right and you have the camera running at the right time. Things are greatly magnified on the screen, so every detail counts. It's a very impressive medium for the filmmaker to work in, if you get it right. I feel that the movie screen has become a window onto reality, and I started exploring how to make a new kind of movie experience. Now, because of digital cinematography and digital projectors, it's effortless to go to high frame rate. We can do it easily. Flip of a switch, and you're at 120 frames a second, which is what I'm experimenting with here. And the illusion on the screen becomes much more like a window onto reality. Immersion is very much on my mind as a filmmaker because that's what I get excited by and that's what I love to do. And so I've been exploring this for the last 50 years and trying to figure out how do you tell an immersive story? How do you switch the cinematic language to embrace the presence of the audience? That takes a lot of things to pull off. And I finally made some you know, really fundamental discoveries, which is what this whole place is about, is we're a laboratory where we experiment, with actors, with sets, with props, with cameras, with lenses, with screens, with projectors, with microphones. And this is a laboratory of trying to discover the future of cinema. I got to experiment with vertical screens instead of horizontal screens, spherical screens. Uh, we were shooting 48 frames per second disposition film, rendering in 6K resolution with an IBM supercomputer, uh, and projecting in 48 frames with very high brightness on these screens and mixing live action, miniatures, and computer graphics seamlessly with fisheye lens photography. It was a bear to do, but it was very successful. The camera can be suspended weightlessly in the middle of the stage, be supported by this crane, but there's sensors all over that crane. So the computer knows exactly where it's pointed, what the focal length of the lens is, where the focus is set, and where it is three-dimensionally on the stage. That goes into the computer and generates the background for that scene. So I can superimpose actors into a computer-generated environment in real time, not a post-production process. It's all about real time. We see it instantly. So we can immerse actors in a synthetic environment in real time and shoot very quickly because I don't have to build any sets and I don't have to go on locations. I shoot it all right here. Doug Trumbull is a man with an idea. And the idea is that movies could look more realistic and be more involving than they are. Hi, I'm Doug Trumbull. When I was growing up, I was entranced with movies. I loved the giant screen spectacle of Cinerama and admired the directors who worked in this fantastic medium 
drawing audiences into amazing and almost overwhelming immersive experiences. The Cinerama screens were 90 feet wide and you felt surrounded by the deeply curved image. When George Marshall directed the train sequence in How the West Was Won, I was amazed at how he managed to adapt his directorial style to the ultra-wide three-camera Cinerama medium. When David Lean made Lawrence of Arabia in 70mm Super Panavision, I was convinced that powerful dramatic stories could be told on the giant screen. My first experience working on a 70mm giant screen movie was as an illustrator on the Cinerama 360-degree dome screen movie To the Moon and Beyond for the New York World's Fair. It was like a planetarium with a movie instead of the sky. It was seen by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke confirming their belief that they could make what Stanley called the first good science fiction movie. Also saying that he felt an obligation to make 2001 A Space Odyssey to be how the universe was won. When I was 23 working on 2001, Kubrick would often talk to me about his frustration with 24 frames per second, since there was so much blurring and strobing. He also complained that he was bored by conventional cinematic language and wanted the audience to feel that they were in space themselves. I, I feel like I'm kind of a, a mountain climber or, or an explorer or something. I like finding something that no one's found before. It's a lot of fun and I, I love kind of being ahead of the curve. From Clavius Base, this is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.